I would say you have to know, you have to know yourself, trust yourself and, and trust the people working for you. That was Michael Dale Mole, and this is the Push Through Podcast. Welcome to the Push Through Podcast, where each week we tackle some of the most difficult areas of business as a shop owner, contractor, or manufacturer with some of the brightest and most forward-thinking minds in business development, marketing, entrepreneurship, and leadership. These are conversations designed to educate, inspire, and empower business owners and leaders to push through the barriers and thresholds they see before them. Join us for the ride at thepushthrough.com. That's thepushthru.com, where you can find in-depth articles and show notes from each episode. Get ready for the push through and your host, Jeff Finney. Welcome back to the Push Through Podcast, and I'm glad to have you here. But today, before we jump into our next episode, I wanted to tell you about an exciting uh, thing that we're doing next year in June 4th through 6th. We're going to be having a conference here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And it is going to be going over all of the things that we talk about in the podcast, different areas of business from lean to management to culture and employees. It's going to be a very hands-on conference. We would love to see you there. If you want more information, go to thepushthrough.com. That's thepushthru.com. Sign up uh, to be uh, stayed in the loop about that. And uh, I hope we can see you there. Well, Michael, welcome to the show. We are so glad to hear uh, have you, and um, I'm glad you're here. Michael, are you there? Yes, sir. Good. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Good. Well, this is uh, Michael with Goodwood, and um, uh, Michael, we were talking earlier, I met you at the Vegas show and uh, at the AWFS this last year, and you had a good talk there, and I just was excited about getting you on the show. So uh, again, thanks for coming. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. So... Fill in a few of the blanks about uh, about yourself, what you do, about your company. Just kind of tell us a little bit more about you. Sure. So Goodwood is a custom design and fabrication firm. We are based in New Orleans, but we serve the greater Gulf South area. Uh, we've also been uh, to places like New York City. Um, we have work in California. We have mm-hmm. work in Texas. Um, but predominantly, this is a, a New Orleans-based business serving the New Orleans metro area. So um, when you say design and that, what kind of, so what kind of work do you do specifically? That's a great question. So we do all <laughs> sorts of work, but our main lane is custom furniture and specifically custom commercial furniture. So, you know, server stations and restaurants, full bar build outs, um, offices, things like that. So what we do is we work in conjunction with contractors and we basically come in with a white box and we do all of the finishes um, and it's all. All the build uh, custom out. Custom made. Yep, exactly. Custom made by hand here in New Orleans in our 16,000 foot studio. Yeah. So you probably get into some very unique finishes and, and uh, probably not just wood, I'm assuming metal. And what, what all materials do you oh, work yeah. with? Absolutely. So it's about 50% wood and woodworking. Um, and the rest of that split is predominantly metalworking, mm-hmm. uh, mainly aluminum and steel. But we do dabble in brass, bronze, copper, nickel, um, tons of different alloys. But it is predominantly woodworking and metalworking. We will also work with concrete, acrylic, glass, resin, yeah. um, all sorts of stuff. You know, the, the team we've built here is a really, really interesting group of folks. Uh, most of them come from either a furniture design background or sculpture or the arts. So 
so and I'm have, I'm yeah. really interested to know about that. But tell me how you tell me how you get into the furniture world or the design world. So how how did you come about getting into this? That's another great question. Um, you know, for everyone, it's 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 really different for everyone that works here. But for me personally, I was. Uh, in the very beginning, right after college, I had a job working with animals and I was uh, tasked with fixing and maintaining equipment. And so um, I had I didn't have much of a building background at that point, but mostly just work in the arts. And this kind of got me to, to become a bit of a gearhead. I, I was uh, becoming kind of obsessed with the machines and how they work. And mm-hmm. um, that led me to really focus on um, the details around me every day a little more, you know, I was, I was becoming more focused on the architecture around me. I was becoming more focused on how everything worked and went together. Um, so that spawned me to go and get a job apprenticing in a wood shop. And I did that for about a year. And was then, it a, was that a custom wood shop or furniture type similar to what you're yeah. doing or? Yeah. So it was more, it was more of a mill workshop. So we were doing yeah. more, um, doors, casings, jams, windows, Right. Um, things like that, which, which you know, is an, a, a necessary thing, but it, it was not speaking to me. Sure. Um, it did, didn't really get me going. And um, from there, I went and got a job. So, so basically that after one year, I felt like I had gotten what I could have gotten out of that position at that exact shop. So um, right. I went and got a job as a shop assistant for a big production company doing uh, scenic design work. So, you know, concert sets, um, museum exhibits, things like that. And I was, yeah, it was a, it was a very fun job. I was a scenic carpenter. So <laughs> basically working as, um, tons of building tons of, of, uh, really simple things like, you know, framed walls, flats, things like that. But then we started to get into a little more intricate work, like, um, you know, shaping foam and um, doing concrete finishes. We built a bunker, a concrete bunker inside of a museum. Um, little things like that that got me introduced to a lot of different mediums. And um, right. you know, from from there, I had also that's where that's where I met my business partner as well. We were uh, both working on on that job for that scenic company, and um, we both kind of had the same epiphany at the same moment, where it was like we we work really hard here and it's not really what we want to be doing, but we had so much good exposure to those different mediums that we, that we were uh, both really, uh, I, I guess you could say compelled to, to take that inform that, that knowledge and insight and, you know, push it towards furniture. Sure. So we, we quit our jobs and we started this company. Nice. So, so did you, a little bit about that transition, did you, um, did you just jump into it or did you guys have some stuff rolling on the side first or just kind of jump in with both feet and figure it out? Yeah. So we had one job and that one job was to design and build a small shelving unit for a restaurant here in town. Right. Um, and I laugh because that, you know, that kind of snowballed. We, we designed a really beautiful unit. The client loved it. We were going to build it on the side in a friend's shop. And he ended up just basically coming to us saying, Hey, how do y'all feel about bidding on the whole project? You know, is it something you guys would be interested in doing? And at the time, um, you know, I was 23, he was 24. Right. And we kind of just threw our hands up and said, yeah, why yeah, not? Why not? Let's do it. So we put together a bid, uh, which was grossly underbid, but you know, <laughs> that's you how live, you start. <laughs> you, live in, you live and you learn. Um, uh-huh. and so we did that, man. And, and, you know, it was, um, it was about five months of, hundred hour work weeks, yeah. um, you know, not making 
close to any money, but yeah. it was worth it. It, it gave us a, a portfolio piece, you know, it gave us something to show other people and to try to spread the word about the new business. And, and it worked. Um, you know, it, it all just kind of piled on after that. We've been busy ever since. And that was five years ago. Yeah. It's pretty funny when you start, when you, when you talk to somebody that I'm like yourself, we jumped in with both feet. Uh, I don't have a business partner anymore, but when I first started, I did. And we jumped in with both feet. You know, it was something very similar to that. We bid a project that we had mm. no, no, reason or, or we, we shouldn't have bid it at all. Sure. We had no, you know, we should not have been doing it. I had no, no capacity, no employees, but we bid it grossly underbid it, just like you're saying. And it's funny what comes out of that is you either, you either come out of that where you're starting to know, okay, this is what I want to do. Now we're going to really figure out how to make a business out of it. Or you come out of that, like, no, nah, I'm out, you know, it's absolutely one oh, or yeah. the other. So obviously well, I mean, it compelled you to do more. Yeah. And it's not, you know, it, it, it came with its fair share of hardships for sure. It mm-hmm. was not, um, as I'm sure, you know, and, and any of the other people who have, who have started their own ventures listening, it's, um, it's, it always comes with hardships. It's never easy. And, you know, for us, a big part of what we do, um, you know, the a big part of the ethos of the business is sustainability. So, um, and that's where the name is derived from. So it's, um, it's not just hard to make it in this industry. It's especially hard when you're that young and people won't really uh, give you the time of day. They kind of think that you're um, inexperienced, whether you are or not. And then on top of that, add the layer of sustainability, which, you know, it it, it adds an increased cost. It is more expensive to build things sustainably, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, So with all of these things layered in, we we definitely had the cards stacked against us. Um, But I think those hardships and, and sticking to your guns and, um, staying true to what you believe in, you know, slowly over time, you get people that catch on and that feel that passion. Start to buy those into the that. People mm-hmm. that. Absolutely. Those are the people who, you know, to this day are, are repeat customers. Are, we are working on a project right now as we speak, uh, the fifth restaurant project for our very first client ever, the one with the shelving. Unit. Oh yeah. So, you know, the attrition is also a really important thing for us and, um, we've been able to manage to keep that strong. That's great. And you, you mentioned earlier about <clears throat> being able to kind of uh, craft a team around this um, process and the, the way that you guys work. So how, how do you go out and find a team, especially when you are such a new business and, sure. and in such a niche market as it is? Yeah, that is uh, that that has been one of our biggest challenges until recently. So over the years, we basically took whoever we could get. Um, anyone with two hands and a strong work ethic. And and that's very different now. Now we have an incredibly skilled team. Um, They all work incredibly hard and they're very good at their jobs. So the transition happened once we kind of grew more of a presence, more of a social media presence, more of a web presence and uh, just word of mouth. You know, we were lucky enough to have high exposure projects that put our work in, you know, highly trafficked areas and that did wonders for us. People saw, people saw the name, the logo. They saw us working hard and they asked questions. They said, Hey, um, I have a friend who does this, or I've always wanted to learn this. And we give everyone the time of day. So, sure. um, you know, over the course of a couple of years, we developed an excellent team and, uh, we, we wouldn't trade any of them at this point. They're all excellent. So, yeah. um, I think a combination of just getting the word out there and then also, sticking, you know, again, sticking to your values, making sure the people who work for you know 
why you're doing what you're doing. Right. So one of your, you can tell by your work and, 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 and the way you talk and everything around you, one of your core values is obviously sustainability and being a responsible steward. Um, yes. So, so how, have you always been that way or have, has that something you just kind of learned through your first few projects that, that you saw a need for? What, 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 you know, what brought that? Sure. So I, I have not always been that way personally, but, uh, you know, as of the last eight to 10 years, it's become a big part of my life. And, um, when we started the business, my, my, my partner and I both agreed that this has to be, we have to be a good community member. We have to give back. We have to be impactful. We cannot just be in this from, to make money because the, the, the brutal truth about the custom furniture business is that we compete against, you know, the Ikea's and the West Elms of the world. Sure. And that's a hard competition. You know, they make good furniture. It's not great, but it's good furniture for a ridiculous price. And right. we cannot compete with that. So we have to come to the table with something completely different. So basically the model for us is local people, local product, all domestic lumbers, everything is sourced sustainably. We replant trees to offset our lumber consumption. We have, you know, community development projects. We work very closely with a ton of organizations in New Orleans. Um, it, it's just, in my opinion, it is the only way you should be doing business in 2019. Right. Uh, but it's been that way forever. We, we didn't have the money or the clout, so to speak, in the beginning to really capitalize on that. But after the first two years, it became a very large part of our business. Um, right. We've won sustainability awards. We've won waste management awards. Um, so, you know, we're doing things that most people in our business aren't even thinking of. And it's, uh, it, it's something we do for ourselves. We, we don't, or well, not for ourselves, it's for the community, but sure. we don't do it for any other kind of reason. It's right. something that we feel very proud of and, um, we know how important it is. So it's, it is, it's absolutely a core value of everything we do here. Yeah. And I think one of the one of the things about sustainability people that kind of subscribe to that thought is that they're also really good at sharing what you're obviously doing a great job at sharing. And, and I'd like to get into some of the kind of the tactical ways you're actually being sustainable. And you alluded to one while sure. ago where you're, you're offsetting your usage by, um, by planting trees. And so, so give us some of the, some of the details on how you're actually being sustainable. Cause I think, I think sustainability is kind of like, um, kind of like eating healthy, right? You know, there's mm -hmm. some, there's, there's the common view of what eating healthy is, but then there's also the actual, like, you know, what most people think is healthy is not really necessarily healthy. And I'm sure sustainability has oh, got absolutely. a certain, certain uh, element of that because it's, it's just a little bit misunderstood. It absolutely is. It's uh it's funny, Jeff. Sounds like you've done this before. Right. Um, <laughs> it's uh that's a, such a good way of putting it. So oftentimes when we talk about that and, and, and even when I was at AWFS talking to everybody about sustainability in the furniture industry, um, you know, a lot of people kind of look at you with, with, uh, kind of wide eyes thinking like, how, how is it possible to be sustainable in an industry that not only consumes so much raw material, um, but you know, we consume a lot of electricity. We have trucks delivering things to us all the time. Uh, there, there, you know, any which way you look at it, um, it's, it's seemingly a very wasteful industry. Um, what we have done is we have taken a very unique approach to our sustainability and we've tried to figure out how many different ways we as a business can not only reduce our, our footprint, 
but also um, improve the community. So one of the main ways is replanting trees. So the offset of planting trees locally is really important. New Orleans is the most heavily deforested city in the entire country. Wow, so, I didn't know that. Um, yeah, it's a, it's an unbelievable thing, and uh, it's a, it's also the sad reality that we live in. And so, fit being faced with uh, um, tons of storms and rain, we're also the rainiest city in the country. It's very hard to to see more parking lots, more buildings going up. And one of the ways that we can offset this is by replanting trees. A fully grown tree. Um, at least down here, you know, live oaks, magnolia trees, holly, um, some of these trees can absorb thousands and thousands of gallons of rainwater per right. day. And that's incredibly vital to the community. Um, more and more, we see these storms getting worse. And that is a very important thing. Replanting trees is probably the best thing you can do anywhere that suffers from uh, rainwater flooding. So, so do you have kind of a equation that you use like every 500 board feet i plant two trees or something of that effect i mean how do you how do you kind of calculate it or is it just kind of a a feeling thing so it's that is something we're still working on we've actually partnered with an organization here in town a, a sustainability consulting agency that's helping us put a hard metric to it mm -hmm. but what we do is uh, we, we simply plant as many trees as we can, and then we try to quantify the board footage amount following that. So last year we planted 92 trees. Um, and, you know, depending on the way you look at it, we'd like to look at it as those mature, as those trees in their maturity, sure. how many board footage, how much board footage that would be. And I mean, you're talking about four, four or 500,000 board feet. So, yeah. um, it well offsets what we use and much more than that too. Yeah. And so, I think the biggest part of it is just the exercise, just the doing it and, and making it a part of your, your system is just the doing it. Absolutely. Not, probably not, not so much about the number, but I was just curious if there was a, you know, if there's something that translated there. No, well, you know that, I mean, that, that is what we're working on. Cause I want to have that metric, but yeah, very the systematic thing important yeah. to remember is that for us, sustainability starts in, at the local area. Um, there are plenty of companies that plant trees, uh, but we literally do it ourselves. So nice. we're doing it right here in our community because we need it the most. And it's, um, it's something that also allows for us to engage other community members and other colleagues and businesses, which is a wonderful thing. Oh yeah. So that, that is the big ticket for us. We also do things like, um, all of the sawdust from milling lumber, all of our sawdust is donated to local farms for mulching and, and animal beds, things like that. Um, we're using all either zero VOC or ultra low VOC paints, varnishes, finishes. Um, all of our steel and aluminum scraps are recycled. Um, you know, it's like all these small things that when you really take a step back and look at them, they add up to a significant offset. Um, it's, it's something that we try really hard to make sure we do the very best we can. You know, there's absolutely no plastic water bottles allowed. We have an awesome water filtration system installed in the studio for all of the employees to fill up water bottles. Yeah. Um, every single light in the entire building is LED. Um, all of the machines are high efficiency. Everything is three-phase power, high efficiency. Um, yeah. Just little things like that, man. You know, they add up. And, and at the end of the day, when you take a step back, it's a very large impact. Yeah. Um, so the, what do you do with your actual, um, you know, you, you probably use more solid wood than anything, but what do you do with mm -hmm. things like plywood waste or if you use any melamines or things, you know, more sheet, yeah. good, more sheet good type waste? That's a great question. You're trying to get me here. I am. Um, 
So those, anything that is what we would call engineered or artificial is used to soak up paint and then we can dispose of our paint and uh, I see. it's kind of a win-win because you can recycle the can, you, re you, 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 you can throw, you can legally throw away the paint if it is absorbed. If it's absorbed in a so as a solid. It, exactly. So right. any kind of plywood, MDF, melamine, all of that stuff is used for paint absorption. So do you just grind it up or do you just use your, your dust from those, from those processes to do that? We, so we grind it up and well, actually what we've started doing recently is any kind of drops or scraps from projects, those get donated to a local reuse organization that I'm affiliated with. Mm -hmm. And those get used towards projects for, um, you know, different community members that go into yeah. the, uh, to the store and buy products from them. Um, or they have a maker space there that they use the scrap wood for. So everything gets used. We have a three yard dumpster. So I have 16,000 square foot studio with 10 full-time and two part-time employees. And we get rid of less than three yards of waste per week. So that's pretty, it's you know, pretty amazing. The, it's, that's a good it's a point huge, on the uh, huge impact on the donating, you know, sheet goods and, and scraps and cutoffs because um, so many times those just end up in the dumpster um, because you know if you if you keep them you end up just having a mountain of, exactly. of scrap. So I mean if you can find I know here locally with me uh, we, we've got about twenty five thousand square feet about the same amount of people we definitely go through more trash than that but we do um, we donate. Uh, we donate a lot of scrap to, there's a couple area churches here that are always tinkering or building something mm -hmm. or having a craft day. Yeah. A lot of times the, uh, you know, somebody from the church will come and ask if we could just cut them a bunch of scraps at two foot by two foot or one foot by one foot or whatever. And they'll, they'll make them sure. for plaques or signs or whatever. And, you know, we always, we always try to help on that and it cuts, it cuts down our waste. And so we're, we're mindful of it, but I can honestly say we're not, we're not near sustainable. We're not good enough. And sure, it's definitely sure. something that we want to be better at. And um, things like dust is, is a real hard part for us because we have, we primarily mill sheet goods. So right. we, we use a three yard dumpster per week of just plywood dust, mm. mm -hmm. you know, so that's really hard to find a home for. And that's, that's been a, that's been a challenge because even it's, it's hard to get rid of period, you know, and oh, and and you know what? It's also it's it's not only hard to find a place for it to go. It's also hard to wrangle that stuff. I yes, mean, to, exactly. To actually, bag it up is difficult. So we and and I would urge you and all of the listeners to look for a local paint supply or paint recycling facility because sawdust, fine sawdust, honestly, any kind of sawdust will work. But the finer, the better for that. They'll take and they'll take plywood they'll take mdf they'll Anything. take all sorts yeah. of stuff and it is very 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 helpful for those facilities and honestly i think um we're just at a point now where we all need to be aware of this you know it's sure. starting to get pr pretty scary and um you know this is one of the things that's really easy instead of having a trash collection company come out and pick it up have the paint company come out and pick it up yeah yeah so i mean like i said wrangling that stuff as far as bagging it or even just keeping it in a dumpster, it's always, um, it's always a trick. But I mean, if you, if you make it a process, like you do, it, you know, like with anything else in your shop, if you just make it a process, then I'm sure it could be figured out. It's just a matter of putting the time and effort in, in doing it. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
So what other kind of cool things do you do as far as as far as sustainable goes? Because I mean, like I said, if you're in sixteen thousand feet, you're only dumping less than three yards of trash uh, per week uh, of waste. I mean, there's you, and you're producing a pretty fair amount of product. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that seems like. Are you constantly making trips to the recycling yard, or do you have uh, uh, accounts? Or, I mean, relationships set up with all these different companies. How does that work? Yeah, yeah. So we do have relationships set up with all these companies, and basically they come and pick up from us, and we just donate it. It's all free. So we have all these. So you know, for example, we'll talk about the scrap wood and the sawdust. Yeah. The 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 people who use those products. We put them in bags or boxes outside of our door on certain pickup days per week. They swing by, they pick them up, and it's really easy. We don't ever charge any money. Um, again, that's a big part of the sustainability factor. Sustainability is not just about the environment. Sustainability is also about the community. So if you're going to take something like all of your sawdust and you're going to charge them for it, well, you're kind of taking a step in the wrong direction there. It's all about community engagement and sustainability literally in the definitive sense of the word where, you know, is it sustainable for me to charge somebody for my time to bag up this sawdust? The, the short answer is no, because at the end of the day, it, you can't really put a price on on that. It's, it's kind of trash, but um, it can be used in really uh, important ways if it's used or, or if it's given appropriately. So um, that's something else that's a big part of it. You know, we do that on our own time because we care. And it goes a long way, and we have great relationships. Um, with the recycling of all the metals, we do that about once a month. Um, you know, down here in New Orleans, it's not a difficult thing for us. We're not too far away from the metal recycling facility. Right. And another great thing is you get paid for it. They will sure. buy it off of you. So it's one of these things I tell all of my colleagues in the industry, all my other buddies who, who um, you know, build furniture or carpentry shops, anything like that. You, you're not going to make a million dollars off of it, but you will make something. It will at least be worth your time to drive it out there. Yeah, and, yeah. at least offset um, your hard costing or whatever. Absolutely. And, you know, you're just keeping more things out of the landfill. You're supporting local businesses. Um, it's, a, it's a win-win for everybody involved. Yeah. And, and, you know, the other thing I would highly recommend is it's, there is definitely a difference in quality with most low VOC or zero VOC finishes. But if you do your research, you can find the really good ones. Um, a lot of these hand-applied oil finishes, like these oil waxes, like um, you know things like Osmo, um, these are fantastic finishes if they're applied the right way. They're durable. They're beautiful. They last for a long time, easily touched up, and incredibly environmentally safe. So right. it's, it's just about being aware of those things. Yeah, and that's the, the finishing part is always – it's probably a huge contributor to overall environment, but I mean, it seems like it's lagging in, it seems like overall it's still lagging because, uh, you know, there's still so many lacquers and things like that out there that are so easy to right. get. And, and, you know, with all the solvents and everything that just make them what they are, you know, easy to work with and durable and everything else. They dry but, fast. They're durable. They're yeah. easy to spray. But the, the, at the end of the day, you know, you have to be able to, it, it's also an internal question. Not everybody cares enough to do that and make that change, sure. which I understand. But, you know, we use a Matthews paint system. Um, Explain that. So the Matthews paint system is an automotive paint system. It's It works incredibly well for furniture as well. Um, you can color match up to 69,000 colors. And right. we use the ultra-low VOC spray system. So that spray system um, 
I, I believe it's like 0.03% volatile compounds. Wow. So it's just tiny. nothing. Yeah. Um, the, the thing though, is that you have to, to learn how to work with the product. So when you're spraying it, HVLP, you, you are, are overloading. So tons of material is coming out because of the ratio. So you have to spray fast. You have to pull your gun a lot further away and it takes a lot longer to dry. But if you can schedule wow. that into the built to the production line where you're giving it 24 hours to dry instead of two, um, it works just the same. In fact, it's more flexible. So the, the ultra low VOC system we use is more flexible and it will flex with expansion and contraction a lot better, almost 50% more than their conventional system. So there's advantages to it as well. It's really not a one-way street. It, it goes both ways. If you learn how to work with that product, you actually get a lot out of it as well. Right. That's uh, that's real interesting how there's, it's just a matter of making it a priority. And like you said, it's part of your value set. And, uh, it's just making it a priority and part of your business plan that this is how we're going to do business and we're not going to be happy until we find the right product that fits what we're doing. Yeah. You know, we, uh, be living here in new Orleans, there's, um, there's no shortage of awareness of that. You know, I think, um, we, we live in one of the cities and, and nowadays you, uh, you know, you feel like you hear about it all over the country, whether it's tornadoes or fires or floods or whatever. Right. Um, these things, these things are creeping up on us really fast and everything, you know, a lot of people think that one step at a time doesn't make enough of a stride, you know, like it's not a big enough difference, but that's not right. And, um, if we all take little steps to slowly make changes to becoming a more sustainable business, that really makes a tremendous impact. You know, we, we, we've offset our waste by almost 85%. Um, our goal is to wow. be a completely waste-free facility by 2025. Um, so, you know, being a custom furniture studio, that's a, that's a pretty serious thing. And, sure. Uh, not, Especially not as you grow. Lightly. Absolutely, man. Yeah. I mean, because you're going to become to a point where you're going to be producing more of these dust and scraps to where maybe you're going to overload your resources that you have, you know, your places that you're sending that. Um, Absolutely. so it'll be interesting. You'll have to get very creative. I would imagine the larger that you get. So does, is that, and that was one of my questions. Does sustainability become more difficult the larger that you get? Um, the, yes. In short, I think it does because you you literally just have more. Um, so you're going to have to find a place for more of that to go. I don't think it's going to become a big burden for us because so far our growth, we've been able to keep up with it with our growth. Um, and I don't foresee us getting too, too, too much bigger than we are at the moment. Um so I don't think it will be an issue for us, but I definitely think that it's it, it adds to the challenge because sure. you know if you have we work with three or four local farms, for example, that take our hardwoods. So like you know they'll take the ash, the maple, the walnut, um, mm -hmm. and they take those wood chips and wood and and sawdust, and they use it for all sorts of stuff on the farm. If if we were to double in size, for example, they wouldn't be able to keep up with how much we had. So right. we'd have to become creative with that. But for the time. Um, it, it works really well. And, and, you know, the other thing I wanted to say about this that I think is incredibly important for people to know, we, we, we've really become a global economy in the most literal sense possible. You know, I have I colleagues that don't even order a single material or piece of hardware uh, from anyone inside the United States. So what I would also suggest and urge all the folks listening to do is to try, try your hardest to be a hyper-local business um, and focus on finding local vendors because honestly, we are only as good as our vendors. 
you know, when you're building furniture, if you get, uh, uh, if you get 500 board feet of just absolutely terrible uh, lumber from a vendor, well, it doesn't matter. You can be the best furniture maker on earth. It's not going to come out that well. Right. So you have to take advantage of the, those, um, those avenues within the business where you can make decisions and say, hey, look, I can get this product for 10% cheaper from this company or I can go down and talk to this person, make sure they know exactly what I want. They can see my face. We can forge a relationship. And you know what? I bet you you end up getting the same price after a few orders with them because that's how business works when you do it on a local level. And I cannot tell you how many times our vendors have saved um, on short timeline, quick turnarounds. Um, we get a bad order of something in and they just come and deliver a fresh batch the next day. Yeah. Hey, don't worry about it. You pay us next week. That's invaluable. And also on top of all of that, you're contributing to your community, your local economy. We have over the over the last five years, we've put over two million dollars into the local economy, and that's not just uh, the, the greater New Orleans area. That is our parish. So in Louisiana, we have parishes instead of counties. Right. So you're talking about uh, a, a small concentration of that amount of money back into the economy, which is another massive part of sustainability. Yeah, and you know, and I'm a big uh, proponent of. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of like theory of constraints, um, you know, um, talking about how things move through the shop and bottlenecks and kind of goes along with some of that lean manufacturing. But mm -hmm. if you get to the core of the theory of constraints, it's the, the at its core, it's about reducing inventories um, to uh, better utilize your cash. And the way a lot of the, users of, or the, the followers of theory of constraints, you know, the ones that actually have their business wrapped into it, they are very good at turning their inventory, um, 15, 20, 30 times a year, you know, a lot. And, and it's because they're, they've got very good relationships with their local vendors. And the right. only way that you can be a true user of the theory of constraints is to have, you know, almost be ordering by order, you know, which, the lar again, the larger you get, the harder that is to do. But the only way you can do that is to have local vendors. You know, you can't order from overseas or even across the U.S. and expect to just order, you know, 50 board feet of this or 25 sheets of right. that and expect to make any kind of money. So, you know, that to me, what you're saying falls directly in line with, with that whole line of thinking on theory of constraints of, of you know, of, reducing your inventories down to down to as close to a zero as you possibly can. And, and that in turn kind of has that cycle effect that you're talking about in your own County, you know, where you're, where you're dumping that money directly back into that, that economy right there. Absolutely. And you know what, on the flip side of that, you're not only, and that is what we do just, just for the record. That is what we do. We, we order per project because we order locally. Sure. And so we have, a very small backstock of certain things that we know we'll need at the last minute. You know, we, we have, a, for example, we have 50 or 60 sheets of structural plywood ready right. to go if we need it. Um, little things like that. But at the same time, that was bought locally too. So the other benefit to this is that you're not backstocking material without knowing that it will sell or not. And therefore, you're not purchasing and producing additional product to tie back to the sustainability factor here. Yeah. Um, there's no extra for no reason. You get what you need, you use what you need, and if you need more and you have these local relationships, you can get it right away. 
if there's enough people that get onto this way of thinking, you know, um, if you think about it more on a global scale or even like a state scale, you know, if, if more people started doing it that way, they start ordering from their vendors like as they need product or as they need a, a job, then that's only going to continue to roll, you know, uphill all the way back to the mills and, and, and ultimately to how they forest, you know, how much of the economy's inventory of lumber is tied up just in logs sitting on a lot or, um, or, or cut boards sitting in a warehouse that aren't helping the environment or any of that kind of stuff, you know, that, that are just oh, basically yeah. sitting there as, as dead inventory. Absolutely. And, and I mean, you know, it, we, we can get granular with that, but in general, that's just not a good thing for anyone. Right. You know, you're, you're floating money up front for additional product that you don't know if you'll sell or not. You're taking a uh, valuable space. The person you ordered from was producing the product. There's a whole chain reaction involved to that. And if you can avoid it for, without having a, an actual client willing to pay for the product, it, it's a good thing. You're doing a good sure. thing. So I, sure. I agree with you completely. Yeah. Very interesting. I never, I've never thought about it in that regard until just now when you're talking about the local, the community aspect of it. So that's very, very interesting how that all kind of ties oh, together sure. with, with that, with that line of thinking. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, so you said you've been in business for five years now. Yes. Okay. And you've got a business partner. So when you started, what was, what was kind of your, um, you know, there's, I've, I've found by interviewing several people over the last couple of years, there's always a low point. There's always like something that just gets you right on that line of we're going to make it or we're not. And what mm -hmm. was, what was that point for you or what, what happened? What, what was there something there that happened early on in your business? Oh yeah. Uh, which one do you want to hear about? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, there are two that I can think of. Um, and I'll, I'll abridge them because they're, they're pretty long stories, but basically the very first project we did, we had partnered with somebody who I used to work with because we had no tools of our own. We had no shop space. We partnered with this person. Um, they let us use their tools in their shop and we paid them uh, a lot of money for that one even split of the project. We split the project four ways and just for letting us use that, space and those tools we gave him a fair share of the pot which ah. we shouldn't have we were young and naive at that point like i said i was 23 years old sure um and basically uh we knocked the project out of the park and a year later we got a cease and desist letter from him because he was trying to claim the project as his own work oh so this was obviously something we didn't know what to do uh <laughs> You know, Jordan, my partner, Jordan and I, we just looked at each other like, man, are like, what, what is this? What does this mean? What do we do? We had no, absolutely no clue how to navigate this situation. So <laughs> right. uh, luckily for us, this is, this is the serendipitous nature of New Orleans. Sometimes the landlord of the building in which we built the project is a lawyer. He loved the work we did for him and we had gotten his personal contact information. He had told us, hey, look, y'all ever need anything? Let me know. So funny enough, we needed, we needed something, something. <laughs> right after we met him. Um, we contacted him, and he represented us pro bono through the entire thing, and we nipped it in the bud and got out of it clean. And, nice. Um, it, was a, it was an amazing experience because luckily we were okay afterwards. Um, but more importantly, we learned a lot about business and just the dynamic of doing business. And wow. 
um, you know, there are bad people out there. There are people who want to take advantage of you. And so um, that was something that really early on put, you know, gave us thick skin. Um, and it also allowed us to be aware of the fact that, you know, not everyone has the same outlook as we do on doing business. We try to do, do the best business we can, um, try to treat our employees the best we can, um, just try and treat everybody with respect and do the most you can for others. Sure. And not everyone feels that way. So that yeah. was a huge hurdle for us in the very beginning. Um, and the, uh, the second big point where it was like, Ooh, I don't know about this. We, we had a huge project that uh, had a very demanding timeline. Um, we, we were working all hours of the day and night. Everyone on the staff was working. Over time. It was a brutal project. We ended up finishing the project uh, a little late and, there were a ton of touch-ups to do. So Jordan right. and I, we went there and we stayed on site until about 8 a.m. Um, finishing. And we came back into the shop and we were furious. We totally lost our cool. Um, we were we were calling people out. We were yeah. talking about all the things that were done wrong. And we had a ton of people just immediately quit right then and there and walk out on us. And what we realized was cannot... You cannot lead a business, especially a business of creatives, you know, um, in the industry we're in where people are tactile. They, they, they are, um, they're working with their hands. They're connected to their work in a different way. Uh, you can't treat people like that. And we, that was a really important experience for us as business owners and managers was yeah. having that happen. Um, we, we were completely fish out of water after that. We had to scramble to find help. Um, and we were really worried about the business at that point. And luckily we bounced back and we found uh, some really strong support. Um, in fact, we found some of the, the best people that we've ever had working for us that still work for us to this day. But it was a, a lesson in management and it was a lesson in um, uh, really just being uh, human and, and treating people like human beings and, and making sure you don't forget that uh, we're, we're all in this thing together. And yeah, we're a team. You, you it's would a few think- things together. You would think that would go without saying, but for some reason, as an owner of a business or even the the, the operator or whatever you want to call it, it's um, that that's that's probably one of the first things that's easiest to lose track of because you first of all, an employee is not an owner, so they've got different goals than you do, and until you realize that it's really difficult not to be a micromanager or not to be that boss right. that just flips out because you got to spend an overnight on a project touching up their mess ups, you know, but, right. But when you look at the root of it, maybe the mess ups occurred because you didn't have the right procedures and processes in or whatever, you know, and you know, that it's, it's really tough to not let that take, take you over, take control of you. Because if you run your employees like that and run them into the ground because of, something that happened, um, man, you're just, you're always going to have this revolving door of employees and you're never going to have, you're never going to have a team. You're just going to have absolutely heartbeats. And, and, and you know what, I I completely agree with you. And I think that the most important lesson, uh, that, that I learned from that experience and the biggest takeaway for anyone else listening is just remember how you felt when you were in a job like that. And somebody treated you that way. And if you haven't ever had it happen to you, you're lucky. You're lucky. Um, yeah. But basically, the, the moral of the story is 
everything at the end of the day boils down to being the responsibility of the, the one in charge, whether you're the manager or the owner. Right. And if you don't take responsibility for the highs and the lows, you're really not doing your job. So that was my first and last time ever um, going through that because we made massive changes <laughs> after that. And this year we uh, won an award as one of the 50 best places to work in New Orleans. So nice. we've, t- we've turned the table. Yeah. And that's a man. That's a big deal because I mean, New Orleans is a big city, and that's a that's a great um, that's a great award to uh, to to lean on right Absolutely, there. Absolutely, I mean, man. That's just we are we're very proud of it. It's something that Jordan and I have spent almost two years working on. Yeah. Um, and, and it's 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 a really good feeling. I wish I would have caught on in my company. We've been we've been in business for about sixteen years now, and um, you know, I I wish that's something I would have caught on a lot earlier on because really until about five or six years ago, I really didn't, um, you know, I, I was, I was that micromanager. I was, had my finger on everything and, mm-hmm. and a lot of it was a trust issue. A lot of it was just didn't know any better. You know, I'm just, I'm kind of a hands-on guy as it is. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and it took, it took a lot of learning and a lot of self-education to realize that what I was doing was just not just hurting those people or my business is hurting me too. I mean, it just, I wasn't personally growing, um, as just as a human because of the way I was treating my employees and everybody around me. So, yeah. And, and, and there's something else that I want to, uh, make very, very clear there. This was a big talking point at AWFS. And I had a lot of questions when I was presenting about this. The, we do not have anybody that works in me my entire business nobody is older than 35 years old the entire business is a group of millennials including myself and my business partner and i have uh for some reason there's some kind of myth i think in our industry that youngsters don't have what it takes to uh to be good at at yeah you can Um, see that by every conference you go to and they uh they have something on the conference talking about that you know how to handle millennials or how to you know however, however they want to word it but it's always handle or take care of or deal with (laughs) right and what i find so funny is that it's actually a lot i mean hey i'm gonna i'm gonna speak you know i'll speak my own truth because it's all i really know but um i find it funny because and i talked about this with everyone that was there that day um it's actually quite easy it's quite easy you have to just prioritize them and what you get in return is commitment loyalty incredibly good work um and, and they care they care a lot. They, they want to be a part. We, we want to be a part of something bigger than ourselves that matters, that's important, and that, honestly, it, it has integrity and does good work. So, you know, with all that being said, you know, we're over here producing incredibly high-quality furniture uh, for commercial spaces, residential spaces. Um, we, you know, we've, we've done hundreds of projects all throughout the country. And, um, you know, like I said, the, the oldest person that works here is 35 years old. Right. So it's um, it's a testament to the fact that we're not in a we're not in in like a in, in our industry at least there there is there's definitely a labor shortage for skilled workers, but there is not a crisis in the sense of not finding quality people to do this work. Um, I would agree. We with have that. we have proven it to be incorrect, and I hope. Uh, that everybody else out there is able to find these people because they exist. They exist all over the place. Yeah. You got to give them a chance. And then second of all, you got to be, you've got to 
be a little different yourself than maybe how you were raised in the workplace, especially, um, you know, in the generation after me, you know, the millennials, it's, it may be a little different, but from everything I've seen, um, man, I learn a lot from them because it's just the sure. way, the way they handle work and the way they research things and the way that they come to conclusions. It's, it's a totally different process than, than <laughs> the way that I grew up. And it, and it's just, to me, it's pretty cool to watch, you know, and, and, yeah, uh, yeah. and, but so many people misunderstand it as, um, being aloof or being, uh, you know, just not, not being present. And I don't think that's it at all. They're, I think they're more constantly in a, research frame of mind of figuring it out frame of mind, you know, that kind of stuff. Whereas I think a lot of people think that just because they're on their devices or they've always, you know, doing stuff on a computer or whatever it is that they're not paying attention where I think it's completely the other way around that they're, they're figuring it out their way. Absolutely. And that (laughs) what you just said is the most important part. It's just a different way of doing the same thing. Yes. Right. And, and honestly, from what I've seen, it's, it's usually more efficient and it's better on everybody and it's probably better on the, uh, the economy and the, the environment and everything. So, I mean, there's their way is to me, it seems like, uh, probably better than a lot of the ways that we do things. So, you know, well, I, I guess we'll find out soon. Huh? That's right. Right. One way or the <laughs> other. So, well, uh, man, before we wrap this up, what's, you know, kind of bringing it back to that sustainability and what you guys do real well and your core values. What's kind of the one takeaway that we can give to, you know, anybody that's listening to kind of what's, what's one of the one big takeaways we can give to them? Where's a good start? Where's a good starting point? In other words, you know, where, where does somebody start when you're like, you're like ourselves, you know, our business, where could we start on becoming, you know, trying to get on that path to have similar success that you've had, especially with the sustainability? Yeah. I, I would say you have to know, you have to know yourself, trust yourself, and, and trust the people working for you. Mm-hmm. And if you have that kind of relationship with your staff and with yourself, honestly, as an owner or manager, then you should be able to prioritize those things and you should be able to find a way to um, not just effectively practice those things, but to also be proud of it and happy with it and not lose money doing it. Um, so the, the big takeaway for me is Know yourself, trust yourself, and uh, trust those working for you. And if you don't, you, you better immediately go out there and schedule one-on-one meetings with every single person working for you. Uh, because it page. goes a very, very long way. It goes sure. a very long way. Sure. I agree with that 100%. Well, um, a few little questions for you. I'd like to wrap up with a few things that mm-hmm. kind of make you tick. What's what's a great uh, quote or advice that you give to uh, to everybody? Well, I, I think when we talked last time, I, I told you that my favorite quote is uh, is a very long quote. So I'll keep it I'll keep it short. But basically, um, there, there's a quote called "The Man in the Arena." It's a Teddy Roosevelt quote, and it's essentially him saying, "It's not the critic who counts, right? Mm-hmm. You know, um, the, the the man in the arena. It stands for basically if if those." are judging you or questioning you, but they're not in there with you, don't listen to them. It doesn't matter. Um, and that kind of ties back to what I just said. You really have to trust yourself and know yourself and be confident in the decisions you make because if you're not, then who else will be? Right. Okay. That's great. Um, give me a, like a resource or an app or just anything that makes you in general or your business better. Just anything that you use or look to. Mm. So I love listening to podcasts. And one of my favorite podcasts is an NPR podcast called How I Built This. 
and it's a wonderful podcast, short and sweet. And each episode uh, kind of interviews business owners and entrepreneurs and their journey. Because even though I was a builder and maker and artist before running the business, um, it's what I do now, and I need to face that that fact. You know, I need to to shape into that person because I need right. to be the one to do it. So I look at myself now as as a business owner, not as a furniture maker. And um, you know. This podcast is a great resource. It's very insightful. It, it, it follows a lot of really successful people's journeys and the decisions they had to make and the tribulations and uh, things that they had to go through. And, and it's really insightful and, and you can relate to almost every episode. So yeah. that's uh, how, how I built this on NPR. Very good. That's, and that's a good one. I listen to it every now and then. I'm I'm on again, off again with podcasts. I'll, I'll stalk or mm-hmm. listen to them for a couple months. Then I'll be off for a few weeks and then back on. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so... That's the great thing about podcasts. They're always always moving. So uh, easy, easy to get to also. Yeah, exactly. So man, tell us uh tell us how we can connect with you the best. And of course all of this will be in the show notes, so there'll be links to all your, your contacts. But how how can we yeah. best get in touch with you? So the website is goodwoodnola.com. So that's goodwood n o l a dot com. We are in the middle of uh basically rebuilding the entire website. So in January, we'll be launching a new website that will be uh, much more up to date. Uh, Everything is custom designed. All the graphics are custom designed. We're going to have videos and all sorts of good stuff. Um, We also do workshops. So that are open to the public, Uh, you know, furniture basics, 101, woodworking, metalworking. So we're going to have a full schedule of workshops on the website for for next year. Um, And really the best place though, even though the website will be wonderful soon, right now Instagram and our handle is at Goodwood Nola, and so we post everything we build on Instagram. All the work is ours, um, and again, we are a design build firm, so most of it is not only built by us but also designed by us, with with a few exceptions. Gotcha, awesome. Well, Michael, I think we packed it all in, and uh, man, I, I really appreciate it. This has been a great episode, and just really cool to look into the business of you know somebody that approaches it from you guys' perspective, which I think is uncommon, especially in yeah. our in our industry. And I think it's very, very cool conversation and very enlightening. And you gave us a lot of little tips of things that we can uh, you know start doing the similar things in our business. So I really appreciate it, and I'm glad you uh, glad you joined us today. Thank you, Jeff. I really appreciate your time as well, man. It's been a great conversation. Sounds great. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Push Through Podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe and visit thepushthrough.com. That's thepushthru.com for exclusive content, articles, and more.